The Mountain Heritage Center at Western Carolina University has these great artifact trunks. And in January, I convinced the fourth grade at Johnson Elementary School to check one out. I said if they did, they wouldn't be sorry, and I would even drive it back for them. So they went ahead and did that. And on the day I was supposed to bring the trunk back, I decided to look on Western Carolina's website to see if there are any interesting events while I was out there, you know, hour there, hour back. I thought I'd make it worth my while. Dr. Lee Odom of the Health Sciences Department was offering a session on compassion fatigue, and that caught my eye. I hadn't learned about vicarious trauma or compassion fatigue until I'd been teaching about 15 years. It wasn't anything in my teacher training at all, and it wasn't anything in any formal professional development I ever did. So I emailed Dr. Odom and asked if I could crash her party, and she let me come in. So Paige Duft and I took a ride up there and sat in on this excellent session with Martha Teeter. She wrote a book called Overcoming Compassion Fatigue. I think it's an important thing for us to talk about because the impact of compassion fatigue affects teachers' ability to stay effective in their classrooms. I'll provide some links here that explain more about what compassion fatigue is, but what I wanted to get to with Ms. Teeter was systems that we can put in place to support teachers. Um, so we talked about that. We also talked about the different attitudes that people coming out of college have about the demands of helping professions. We're not having as many people enroll in schools of education, and it's hard for us to attract and retain the ones that do. So we need to do a better job. Their expectations are higher. If we want high-quality teachers in our classrooms, we're going to have to build systems that let them sustain themselves in a healthy way. So I think this conversation is worth listening to. I hope you do, too. Considering I'm already late. Um, oh, no, you're fine. I have those three questions, and I've got them up. And I, If you don't mind, I'm just going to read them to you again and sure. um, see what you, your thoughts are. I was new to the idea of supervision. I started doing intervention. I worked with social workers and counselors. And I had thought supervision was just being supervised. But that's something that counselors and social workers used kind of to keep themselves healthy and resilient. Um, in the practice of counseling, what does that yield for, for them? What's the, why is it effective? Well, there's been a long um, history of counselor and social worker supervision, um, usually required for them to obtain licensure. So, you know, it's usually required for those kind of new in the field who are working toward licensure. So it may be a couple years that they are supposed to get regular supervision, clinical supervision. Um, a lot of places offer ongoing clinical supervision, but it's less of a requirement than just a really good idea. But um, there was a 25-year um, or a review of 25 years of um, data on this to see what the benefit of supervision is in those instances. And it's it's been found that it does have a positive impact on the person receiving the supervision. Um, so that's a lot of studies that they looked at in a 25-year period. And so the, the supporting evidence is really pretty solid. Um, there have been lots of trends in supervision through the years. Uh, one of the more recent, well, it's not super recent, but one one trend, I guess I'd say, or one way that it's moving is toward reflective supervision, mm. which is where you place more of an emphasis on um, the impact of the work on the um, worker. 
you know, how does this work affect you? How are you doing? How do you stay healthy and well? How do you not let your own stuff impact what you're doing with students? Um, how do you not get, you know, traumatized and impacted by the stories that you hear yeah. every day yeah. of struggling and suffering children and families? And that's whether your role is social worker, school counselor, or teacher. I mean, teachers are very well aware of the traumatic stories that students bring to school with them. Yeah, we do. So it, I'm gathering it makes, um, are people able to stay in the field longer and be more effective in their work? Yes, they are. So yeah. a lot of people leave the field early, partly because they don't have that support in kind of um, looking at the impact on them or talking it through with a supervisor who understands those issues and can support them well and effectively. So yes, um, certainly it helps people stay in the field longer and healthier. Healthier. That's what I'm, we're looking for. So I'm just trying to think about what that would look like for educators at an at a elementary school level, at a high school level. I, I sent you this question ahead of time. Have you been able to imagine anything that you think would be comparable? I don't, I don't know what it looks like. And I, I, I've been trying to think about what it might look like for us if we put something like that in place as a system. Well, I think it's a fabulous thing to consider putting into place as a system because it's going to help you retain employees. It's going to help them be more satisfied. It's going to help them talk up your system to friends of theirs who are in the field and wanting to work someplace that takes care of their staff and thinks about these kind of things in a proactive way. So, you know, there are probably lots of ways you can approach this, but, you know, some of the things that just kind of crossed my mind would be, um, you know, matching maybe a newer teacher with a more um, experienced teacher as kind of a mentor mm. or not really as a supervisor, but a mentor, a support person, kind of a point of contact Mm -hmm. When things get challenging, like, what the heck do I do with this? Or, you know, I'm feeling overwhelmed. You know, somebody who's designated to be a support person for them. Um, also, you can do peer support as a model. So you match up peers mm -hmm. just to be the a point person. So when I'm in the muck, you know, I can call this person who's kind of my assigned person and we provide that for each other. Mm -hmm. um, you can even do... Um, peer support in small groups of coworkers. So, you know, have a group of whatever size, but probably smaller, the better, yeah. um, kind of talk on a regular basis yeah. um, about how the work is affecting them, what personal, in, in, on a personal level, not just, you know, lesson planning and things like that. Yeah, um, You can provide training opportunities for staff, um, to learn more about, you know, creating a healthy workplace. How do you keep your wits about you when you're in a really hard job mm -hmm. and maybe in a challenging school? Um, you know, individual schools vary a lot in the kind of support they provide their staff. That so is some... true. And I don't know that it's ever formal. I don't know that it's, I think it's something that organically occurs. Um, or doesn't. Or doesn't. And I, I'm one of the things I'm working uh, with some colleagues on is to to look at where in our district do we already have that in place and how can we replicate that into buildings that need it? Right. So I think trying to create something that's more broadly um, applied would be good. 
Um, even just focusing on building a culture of wellness within the system and then kind of disseminating that out to individual schools and saying, this is a value of ours and this is important to us as a system. And here are some ways that you can build this into your particular school. Um, you know, kind of creating a space for staff to kind of talk about this, normalizing the impact of this work mm. and saying, here are some of the risks that a lot of people experience when they're working with students and families and trying to teach them or help them develop. You know, it's totally to be expected that there are times you're going to feel bogged down by that. Mm -hmm. You're going to feel used up or depleted. We want to normalize that. There's mm -hmm. nothing that we're going to pathologize about that. It just happens. But how can we help it happen to a lesser degree? Yeah. And how can we provide what the staff needs that's like kind of concrete and tangible and that we're not just giving it lip service? Yeah. But we're actually providing supports and training and um, establishing some uh, models of how this could work. Yeah. It was really, um, I took notes in the um, presentation and I put those in the slides and there was like a visceral reaction in the room to some of the things I listed. Do you remember to what specifically? Uh, I think lack of control. I think in the last few years there's been, um, that's occurred organically with COVID, but there's also been some um, decisions made at, at higher levels that we have no control over. And the big thing we kept coming back to is that teachers right now, more than ever, I've been doing this since 1997. And I think now more than ever, I've seen that teachers are not able to do the kind of work that they envision themselves doing and or we're used to doing. And um, I think that it becomes an identity issue. Uh, I think a lot of teachers are very enmeshed in their identity as teachers. And when that gets turned upside down um, by some of the things that you're um, tasked with doing, um, I think that can that can start a cascade of uh, of the other stressors. I think you're right. And I think a lot of people go into teaching with kind of an idealized notion of what that is. And wouldn't sure. that be precious to work with these kids and make a difference and yeah. make them little learners and then you get in there and it's not just being with students and providing support and helping them learn, but it's everything else that's yeah. involved in that. Yeah. Um, I think that really kind of came to the forefront during COVID yeah. when your job as an educator totally just spun around to be something else altogether. Yeah. And, you know, you heard educators talking about how I was just doing my job as a teacher and like overnight, I had to learn all this technology. Oh, yeah. you know, I'm too old for this. I don't have the energy for this. I'm not a 13 year old who's savvy with all this stuff. Yeah. And it was really, really frustrating because at the same time that they're dealing with all of this change in their role, all of the stress in their students trying to teach remotely, they were also personally affected by COVID. And oh, yeah. Like all of us were. Yeah. They were parents. Isolation and they were yeah. parents. They're trying to manage their children's schooling in two or three different grades and do their own work and their kids are at home. And it was yeah. just so stressful. And I think a lot of people at that time said, this is not what I signed up for. I think that is true. I think there's been some reevaluation. Um, so I think we need to be responsive to that. I hope we can. Um, 
one of the note things in your presentation was that teachers were more, more resilient to compassion fatigue. And I think I would have maybe agreed with that five years ago. Um, and I wondered how fresh that data was, if there's any work being done on that now. I don't know if you're aware of any of that. Um, you know, I'd say there's some work being done on it now. Most of the information I've found, though, is not post-COVID. Mm -hmm. you know, it's before COVID really impacted us. But um, still, that information comes out of people who took the ProQual, the yeah. Professional Quality of Life Inventory. Yeah. And so in the kind of um, assessment of how different professions scored on compassion, satisfaction, compassion fatigue and burnout. Mm -hmm. um, it looked like teachers have higher levels of compassion satisfaction. So that means that, and this is pre-COVID, right. so it's probably changed some, but you know, it shows that teachers by and large do get some good stuff out of their role. Yeah, They do feel some satisfaction in what they're doing. They feel in some ways enriched by what they're right. doing or that they're it's a calling or right. that they're in the right place doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, so compassion satisfaction is also kind of a protective factor against burnout. Yeah. So one way to, to prevent worsening burnout is to build your compassion satisfaction, mm -hmm. you know, looking for the good, um, good stuff in what you're doing and how that can be something that feeds you instead of depletes you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that the pro call was in my presentation and there were several senior leadership people in the room who went, we did that once. Oh, really? Yes. And they That's were like, awesome. we should do that again. And I was like, yeah, I think this would be a good time. Let's try so, it out. <laughs> and that's another really cool thing you can do when you're thinking about how can you um, provide some kind of supervision opportunities. Mm -hmm. Um, you can do even like in teams or as a small group, you could have um, your small groups or your teams take the pro call and then have conversation about it. Um, you know, there's lots of ways of doing that, but I think that would be really helpful and it helps people size up their level of compassion, satisfaction, fatigue yeah. and uh, compassion, fatigue and the burnout. Yeah. So it can be kind of revealing for some people. Some yeah. people can kind of guess their scores, but a lot of people are surprised. I think I, I I can I think I'm someone who's pretty aware of my stress level, my fatigue level. And when you you brought out the lists of risk factors and the list of symptoms, Paige Paige is another she's an educator our age, and we were both like, oh, that's true. Do you have oh I have that too. So it was real it really resonated. And I think well, it's good to know. Yeah. Because if you know that, then you can do something about it. Uh, absolutely. Just the, even, you know, the emotional vocabulary we try to give kids uh, to more concretely describe what they're feeling so we can address it. You can try and solve it. It's the, this is the same thing, but on the teacher level. Right. Right. Um, let's see. Uh, so this was the thing that I brought back that I think really sent a shiver up uh, leadership <laughs> spine was about the reaction of younger people in the room. Because I heard a couple of people go, well, how will we know when we go visit a prospective employer, whether they have these systems in place already? And I was like, right. oh, oh, girl, yes, <laughs> ask them, ask them. Have you noticed a difference in that generation? Is that the kids who are graduating now? Yes, I think I have. I think there's been a shift and some of the younger folks are saying, 
I am not going to get into teaching so I can just burn myself to the nub and, you know, spend all my money buying supplies for my classroom and do everything and go on home visits and, you know, stay after school helping everybody. And, you know, I'm not interested in like using myself up. So I do think there has been a bit of a generational shift, maybe like the younger people saying, I don't, I don't want to work someplace that expects me to just burn out. Yeah. Um, and I'm not willing to do that. I don't think that we talked about it as much in years past. I don't either. So some of the folks who've been around a little while, you know, didn't get this, that it would be okay to kind of have that wellness mentality. Yeah. You said you think so too. Oh, I do. I think we were all unconsciously codependent. I felt like I was like super woke because I was like, I don't need to have the best looking bulletin board in the school and I'm okay with that. But in, but really when I look at it in this larger context of the values that um, young people are coming into the profession with, uh, I realized I, there was like some codependence that I, I think I had professionally with schools, with uh, society. I, I was carrying it all. And that was, right. that, that I guess felt like uh, I, I look back on something I wrote about belief statements. There's a, uh, I think it was an old series um, I think it was a radio series in the in the fifties, and it was I believe, and famous people, regular people would talk about what they believe. And my belief was work, <laughs> right? Like that was that's what I believe. That was the one thing that I. But I look at my family, cops, nurses, teachers, right? That's we're we're servants, and the work yeah. is is noble, and yeah. it, but it it really is. It takes it it takes a toll on you. And, you know, my parents were both educators and I can remember my mom going into school early yeah. in the morning. She would stay after school helping students. Um, she would be on the phone a lot in the evenings talking to parents. Um, she'd be working evenings and weekends doing all her stuff. You know, it was um, and I think that was kind of I don't know that she ever questioned it or complained. No, about I'm it. sure she did. She was also a traveling teacher. She was an orchestra teacher and she went to. I think seven schools a week or, you know, several schools a day. And then and, probably competitions on top of that. The band. Yes, teachers. exactly. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that was kind of how maybe it was back then. I think but so now too. I think um, there are some um, educational programs. Like when people are in college, they start hearing about this some, mm-hmm. or if they're in grad school, they'll hear about this some, like the training you came to at Western, you know, that was mostly grad students, I think some undergrad, but I think there are programs that are now talking about this, like the risks of the work and, and saying, you need to know this now as you're going through your training or doing student teaching or internships and things like you should know this now. And if you recall at the training at Western, a lot of those students were saying, yes, they're already out in the field mm-hmm. as part of their education. And they're already noticing, you know, right. the impact of the stories they're hearing and the people they're working with. So, you know, and they're also noticing differences in the workplaces where they're showing up. Yeah. And you're right. Somebody or a couple people did say, um, so if you're interviewing for a job, how do you find out if this is a good place to work? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a great question. I did, too. I did too. And I'm not sure that we're ready to answer that in uh, education right now. I'm not sure that we have the systems in place, but I think we need to rapidly respond to that because very quickly, um, the numbers in the schools of education have been going down. 
Um, we're not making enough teachers to replace ourselves. Um, the last question I have for you is about the whole hero thing. Um, that that became a raw nerve for a lot of us in education. I, I'm sure it was true in in medicine as well and other um, essential workers. What do you think the impact was, if there was any, about about hero talk? You're a hero. So I think that's a really interesting question. It's like a thought-provoking question. Um, on the one hand, I mean, there are probably a couple ways to think about it, and I want to know what you're referring to in just a minute. But on the one hand, you think, well, you know, it's better than a kick in the teeth, right. you know. Um, maybe you're noticed or acknowledged. You may think, well, it's too little, too late. <laughs> yeah. Where where was this hero talk before when I was also acting as a hero? Um, but it's better to be acknowledged and seen mm -hmm. than overlooked. Um, for some people, it could maybe bring a sense of pressure mm. or something or expectation, like I have to be a hero when actually I just wanted to be hired to do a job. Yeah. Not everybody sees this as a calling or a ministry or a, you know, something like that. Um, some people say, you know, it's a job. It's a decent job. It's an right. honorable profession, but I don't have to be a hero. I'm an educator. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's better than being ignored, probably. But um, I'm curious about what your thoughts are, because you have some thoughts. I think we I think we had initially definitely was nice to be acknowledged um that next year when teacher pay came up in the legislature i i i think we really thought if it's going to happen this is the year it's going to happen and it 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 didn't really happen the way we thought it would go down i think a lot of people i think certainly people in our um educators association were really convinced this was going to be finally the big payoff because they really saw the impact in their own children. We saw that kids' social skills really diminished. They could not um, develop the academic skills that they needed mm -hmm. in this virtual context. We, we, they need us. And the economy kind of collapses when you don't have childcare. So we really were like, okay, we got them this time. Uh, and that did not turn out to be the case. So it started to ring really hollow. Yes, I can see that. And, you know, feeling like, okay, it's nice to be told we're heroes, but without tangible um, expression of that, then it, mm -hmm. it seems a little weak or hollow. Yeah. So yeah, you're thinking, okay, so our value was demonstrated really clearly, yeah. especially for all your parents who had to try and do your own teaching of your children and manage yeah. all that. And when we saw what happened when kids couldn't attend school in person to learning and social skills and development and language in every sense, um, yeah, and feeling like this will be the time, like they're seeing our value for yeah. real. This is it. And then that doesn't happen. And it's probably pretty disappointing. Like words are a little empty. Yeah. Our new superintendent has yeah. says he learned this from a colleague. Your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk louder. talks. Yeah, you're right. So when the tangible um, demonstration of your value yeah. doesn't really come through, then it it doesn't feel good. It did not feel good. It did not. No, it doesn't. Good. So if you if you could wave a magic wand, what do you do? You have one thing that you thought of that schools could implement um, that might help. Well, 
I really feel like um, putting some structures in place to support staff um, to normalize some of the reactions that staff has to their work. Mm-hmm. And then to not just talk and say, oh, this is really a normal response to the work you do. I mean, you don't need just words or a pat on the back, but to say, and here's what we're going to do about this, yeah. you know, and to come up with some plans and some options or maybe a package of options and you present it to the schools and you say, you know, you can pick and choose here and make this fit for your school and your staff, mm-hmm. but we want to offer you a whole menu of things you could choose from mm-hmm. because one size will not fit all right. um, for each school. But I think each school maybe has the responsibility to figure out which of those choices they want to try to implement. Right. So, uh, you know, if, if there could be this expectation like among the system to say, okay, to each school, mm-hmm. you got to do something and we'll help you with this. Yeah. And we'll offer you some resources and ideas and, you know, we'll, we'll do all we can to support you in figuring out what that's going to look like for your school, mm-hmm. but you can't not do something. Right. Because it's going to be a, an institution, an organizational value that we value our staff we want to hire the best staff around. Yeah. The way you do that is making a great place to work. You make work fun. You build really good relationships among the staff. And you create innovation. You provide outlets for people to safely be able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, horrible, hor- you hear horrible stories when you're an educator. You, you know, what do you do with the stories? Yeah, well, you that they're all confidential, so you bury them deep in the darkness of your teacher's soul. And doesn't that seem like kind of (laughs) the worst option? (laughs) So even if you're not revealing confidential information, you know, you can still talk about it. Like I heard this tough story yesterday from a student that was just painful. And I got to figure out what to do with that. So you can do this confidentially and safely, but... I think if if we're not offering those opportunities right. for people, right, they're going to become really unhappy, and then you have an unhappy staff, and that's not a good no, it's not good. for anything. But making things fun is something that I really didn't have in my notes as I thought about what I wanted to talk to you about, but that's that is a good point. And you know, um, I did a lot of work at Haywood. I was in Haywood County, uh-huh. and I did a lot of work with Haywood. Um, County Health and Human Services Agency in doing some wellness and compassion Mm -hmm. fatigue prevention and all this for their staff. And one of the things that we talked a lot about is what do we do to get people to stay? Because they could just drive across the county line and go to Buncombe County and make a lot more money. Yeah. Um, So what do we do to create a culture where people want to stay here? Yeah. And, you know, we surveyed staff and did all these things. And one of the things we found out is that people stay because they like their coworkers or they're having fun and it feels like a team and they don't want to go work someplace else where they don't know if they'd have that. It's true. Yeah. You build those relationships and those teams and you create a healthy workplace and people will stay. They're not going to leave the field or leave the system and go elsewhere. Yeah. If it's rewarding and if they feel appreciated, yeah. and if they do have some measure of control, some say in decisions that are made, their opinion is asked for, even if they don't get everything they want, they're asked for and they feel heard and like mm-hmm. somebody's at least noticing that they might have a thought. Yeah. Yeah. 
That is so helpful. That is so, it's, and so true. I would love for you to come talk to our, our leadership because I think uh, compassion fatigue is not something I've heard or seen in any document in Buncombe County Schools. And I think that we yeah. need to do better. Yeah, and you could work on developing policies around it mm. and like making it like a concrete written value. You yeah. know, somehow embed that in yeah. the values or the mission statement or, you know, whatever you have right. for the system is to say, like to say on your website and in your hiring yeah. practices, you know, you start to weave it into that. Yeah. So when you hire people, you say, this is important to us. Yeah. And you say, this is part of your orientation. You know, this is part of retention. Um, we are going to put our money where our mouth is and yeah. make some things happen. So I think, but it has to come from the top as an organizational value that your leadership yeah. really signs on to. And they say, we are doing this because it's important. We want to be um, the school system in North Carolina that has the most satisfied staff. Right. Like our staff, they stay because they want to be there, Yeah, you know? And, and it's enlightened self-interest. Sure, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> and it saves money. It saves a fortune to retain people instead of have people leave. And then you have to recruit hire, orient, train new people. Right. And meanwhile, the staff that didn't leave is overloaded we are. by all that transition. So yeah. financially, it's really smart as far as your reputation among the state, you know, that people know where the good places are to work. And, and they we know where the bad places are. We have benefited from that a little bit this year. I do think Buncombe County is a good place to work, but we definitely were able to exploit that in a time of teacher shortage. Um, we, we, we were able to get some draft picks. <laughs> well, and just as a, a comment of optimism, the fact that your leadership is kind of excited now yeah. and they're talking about this, they're kind of giving you their blessing to like go out and feel around what the options are. Yeah. and that there's some energy around it, you're striking while the iron's hot, I think, and I saying, okay, this could be a moment in time that's important. Let's like grab it, yeah, like, capitalize on that and like maybe move move the needle a little bit, Yeah, which is so fun and exciting for you. It is, it is. Yeah, I'm grabbing on with both hands. Yeah, I know, it's so <laughs> fun. I mean, wouldn't it be great if you could actually be a part of something that, makes a difference like yeah. that yeah i hope i hope thank you so much for talking with me oh thank um, you i'll, thank I'll you keep in well. touch and i'm hoping yeah. i heard you're back in town in april is that the case yes i am i'm hoping i get to see you then thanks but, so much yeah. martha sure thank you good talking to you you too bye bye